Welcome to Monticello Podcasts. One of the recurring themes in the letters of the Jefferson family is the constant flow of visitors to Monticello, friends and strangers alike, who came in great numbers and often stayed overnight or longer. These visitors ranged from Jefferson's neighbors to the social and political elite of America to European intellectuals and nobles. In a number of cases, visitors wrote accounts of their experiences that provide some of the most vivid portrayals of life at Monticello. Some of these have been, or will be, published as part of the Papers of Thomas Jefferson Retirement Series, itself part of a larger effort to publish transcriptions of all of Jefferson's correspondence and other documents associated with his life. Recently, Retirement Series editor Susan H. Perdue spoke before a small number of Monticello employees and shared some of these accounts that include stories of hair-raising rides, relaxed meals, races on the mountaintop, and a potentially embarrassing social miscue. Um, this title perhaps may be a little misleading. It may make this talk sound a little sexier than it is. But I felt that um, one of the interesting things about Jefferson is the way in which he attracts people to him. And even in the short period that we're, we've dealt with so far in 1809 to 1810, we have a lot of people who come to Monticello, want to come to Monticello, who are extremely interested in everything Jefferson does. So I've titled this talk, Jefferson and the Cult of Celebrity. He, Jefferson was enormously popular during his presidency and beyond, and I think it is fair to say that he attracted a good deal of attention from curiosity seekers, people who had access to grind, or those who were just up to no good. Although the word paparazzi is a 20th century word, in fact, it was only coined as recently as 1966, I have discovered, um, based on an Italian film by Federico Fellini, I think it is likely that it would have been, there would have been paparazzi waiting at the foot of Monticello Mountain for a photo opportunity of Jefferson every day, and I suspect they would have been there 24 hours a day, hoping to get a look at him. So I'm going to talk, just sort of concentrate my, my talk on the period when he first gets back to Monticello, but not, not exclusively. And I don't mean to say that he wasn't visited by friends and acquaintances, which he was, and often, Throughout his life, he extended countless invitations, many of them in the letters that we read every day. He was, by all accounts, a very generous host who treated his guests to fine food, an opportunity to browse through the books in his library, and lots of time to walk around the gardens and grounds. And last, this last thing was especially true because there was usually a really long break between breakfast and dinner, during which time guests were pretty much on their own to take care of themselves and figure out what to do while he retreated to his study or his sanctum sanctorum. So I just want to look at the summer of 1809. Some, the most significant guests, I think, in this time period, and these were friends, were Margaret Baird and Samuel Harrison Smith. Smith was, he was the editor of the National Intelligencer during the time that Jefferson was in the presidency, and he came to Washington to do that at Jefferson's request. And Margaret, his wife, was kind of considered a social maven at the time, but she was also a writer in her own. She was a novelist and writer and essayist. And fortunately for us, she kept a very detailed account of this visit in her diary, which is uh, a document that we printed in the first volume there, and part of which I'll quote from. That's an, a very long document, which she also printed in 1823 in the Richmond Inquirer. And a lot of times, a lot of stuff you'll see nowadays, even on the website at Monticello, are things that Margaret Bayard Smith wrote about this visit. 
I'll just start by describing the, her um, first day arriving at Monticello. Quote, we began to ascend this mountain. Still as we rose, I cast my eyes around, but could discern nothing but untamed woodland. After a mile's winding upwards, we saw a field of corn, but the road was still wild and uncultivated. I every moment expected to reach the summit and felt as if it was an endless road. My impatience lengthened it, for it is not two miles from the outer gate on the river to the house. I thought, this is such a great photo. I hadn't seen this one before off the website, this aerial photo showing you the river and then the top of the mountain. This is a painting from 1827. She goes on, At last we reach, reach the summit, and I shall never forget the emotion the first view of the sublime scenery excited. Below me, extended for above 60 miles round, a country covered with woods, plantations, and houses. Beyond arose the blue mountains in all their grandeur. After breakfast, Mr. J. sent Ellen to ask me if I would take a ride with him round the mountain. I willingly assented, and in a little while I was summoned. The carriage was a kind of chair which his own workmen had made under his direction, and it was with difficulty that he, Ellen, and I found room in it, and might well be called the sociable. And this is a picture of a sociable, I think a much fancier version than Jefferson had, certainly. This is probably English, and his was more probably box-like, probably not as comfortable as this one, according to Margaret. She said, the first circuit, and she's talking about the, the first roundabout, the road was good, and I enjoyed the views it afforded and the familiar and easy conversation which our sociable gave rise to. But when we descended to the second and third circuit, fear took from me the power of listening to him or observing the scene, nor could I forbear expressing my alarm as we went along a rough road which had only been laid out and on driving over fallen trees and great rocks which threatened and overset to our sociable and a roll down the mountain to us. I include this, this is Jefferson's own survey of the third roundabout that he completed in 1809 with his grandson Jeff. And you can see the very detailed survey, um, uh, I assume measurements, as he in fact had surveyed the entire roundabout during the months of late July and August, exactly at the time period when Margaret was visiting. So this drawing itself comes from the Massachusetts Historical Society. So when Margaret exclaimed and was worried about falling out of the carriage, Jefferson assured her, my dear madam, you are not to be afraid, or if you are, not to show it. Trust yourself <laughs> implicitly to me. I will answer for your safety. I came every foot of this road yesterday on purpose to see if a carriage could come safely. I know every step I take, so banish all fear. And she said that this I tried to do in vain till coming to a rock over which one wheel must pass, I jumped out. While the servant who attended on horseback rode forward and held up the carriage as Mr. J passed, poor Ellen did not dare to get out. Notwithstanding the terror I suffered, I would not have lost this ride, as Mr. J explained to me all his plans for improvement, where the roads, the walks, the seats, the little temples were to be placed. She describes the um, several meals that they had, including breakfast. Our breakfast table was as large as our dinner table. Instead of a cloth, a folded napkin lay under each plate. We had tea, coffee, excellent muffins, hot wheat and cornbread, cold ham and butter. It was not exactly the Virginian breakfast I expected. 
Here indeed was the mode of living in general, that of a Virginia planter. At breakfast, the family all assembled. All Mrs. R's children eat at the family table, but are in such excellent order that you would not know if you did not see them that a child was present. And the last scene that she describes, and one of the most memorable scenes is the scene where Jefferson sits on the, uh, I don't know if that's west or east, I'm terrible with directions, you probably all know, uh, with his grandchildren. After dinner he went, that's Jefferson, went to the carpenter's shop to give directions for a walking seat he had ordered made for us, and I did not see him again until after sunset. I spent the interval in walking with Mr. Smith round the lawn and grove, and had just parted from him to join the children to whom I had promised another story, when, as I passed the terrace, he, Mr. J., came out and joined us. The children ran to him and immediately proposed a race. We seated ourselves on the steps of the portico, and he, after placing the children according to their size, one before the other, gave the word for starting, and away they flew. The course round his back lawn was a quarter of a mile. The little girls were well tired by the time they returned to the spot from which they started and came panting and out of breath to throw themselves into their grandfather's arms, which were open to receive them. He pressed them to his bosom and rewarded them with a kiss. He was sitting on the grass, and they sat down by him until were rested. Then they again wished to set off. He thought it too long a course for little Mary and proposed running on the terrace. Thither we went, and seating ourselves at one end, they ran from us to the pavilion and back again. What an amusement, said I, do these little creatures afford us. Yes, replied he, it is only with them that a grave man can play the fool. And I think her account is so important um, as kind of a counterpoint, although certainly we have lots of positive accounts of Jefferson, but Margaret Smith herself is probably the most... Uh, provides us one of the most positive portrayals of Jefferson, largely because she dedicated a lot of her writing life to elevating the reputation of Jefferson and making sure that he was not forgotten, even into the 1830s when she was writing. She would write about Jefferson as well as Madison, because there were certainly plenty of detractors in his life. I just want to take a sort of a, uh, a segue here to talk a little bit about uh, how people managed to get an audience with Jefferson at Monticello. Many of them stayed for extended periods of time without even a previous introduction, or in fact might have been total strangers to him. One of the main devices they got an introduction was what we would call a letter of introduction, which is like a calling card when you meet someone new for the first time. These letters usually vouched for a person's character and made mention of what kind of connection the letter writer had with the person in question. This is a letter from a man named William Roscoe from Liverpool writing to Jefferson to introduce a guest who's coming. Letters of introduction gave them access to an important person, in this case Jefferson, and Jefferson himself wrote many of them and received just as many. In fact, in the first two volumes, we have almost 20 letters of introduction written by Jefferson and 12 letters that he received. And this letter from Roscoe opens, as maybe you can read it from where you're sitting, he writes, I presume upon your well-known partiality to liberal and scientific pursuits to introduce to your notice Mr. John Bradbury, a fellow of Linnaean Society, who has undertaken a tour through the province of Louisiana for the purpose of collecting the various specimens of natural history which it may be found to furnish. And then he goes on a little later, I trust you will find him well informed in the different branches of his favorite science 
and capable of informing you of the progress which is here making in it. Any information, assistance, or advice which you may have the goodness to afford him will be gratefully acknowledged. And that's pretty standard for a letter of introduction. Uh, this person is coming and will perhaps give you something in exchange if you will give them whatever kind of connections you might have or the benefit of your own experience. Another form of introduction to a stranger, or in fact we might even call this the brush-off letter, <laughs> is, a form, is the letter of recommendation. Now this was a slightly different thing and it's mostly exchanged on behalf of job seekers. And even after Jefferson left the president's house, he continued to receive this type of mail because some people didn't even realize he had left the presidency and continued to send him mail looking for jobs. In anticipation of this, he prepared this form letter, which he had 100 copies printed out. And you can see all he needed to do was add the dateline and the opening at the top, the man's name at the bottom. And in this case, he adds a little kind of personalized note, and he signs it. We, uh, I think we only have, Jeff, is that right? This, this is the only one that we actually have. Yeah, we have a blank one, but we know that there probably were 100, well, it's possible he lost some of the blank ones, but it's conceivable he sent out 100 of these, which we just don't have. Um, so, in fact, I think I counted in the first year or so of his retirement, he received 15 letters of recommendation, some of which he probably didn't even read. He passed them right on to Madison and said, I don't even know this man, but he's looking for a job, and this is your bailiwick now. So remember the letter from William Roscoe? He was introducing a man named John Bradbury. John Bradbury came to visit at Monticello right on the heels of the visit that the Smiths made in the month of August. Uh, he was a young English botanist, and he was a total stranger to Jefferson and carrying with him this letter of introduction, which gave him a uh, welcome into the house. He stayed for at least 10 days, and his purpose was mainly to comb the hillsides and the mountaintop to look for American specimens as he was on his way to Louisiana. But also, I'm sure, it was to meet Jefferson, who had initiated the Lewis and Clark expedition, and Roscoe was very interested in what Lewis and Clark had collected, and I think he considered his expedition kind of part B to Lewis and Clark. So after about 10 days at Monticello, Bradbury writes back to his uh, sort of sponsor, I guess, in Liverpool, writing, I have been here about 10 days, which time I have spent in examining the neighborhood, assisted often by Colonel Randolph, who is son-in-law to Mr. Jefferson, and one of the best, if not the best naturalist I ever met with, which uh, I wasn't aware of that his son-in-law was a very good botanist, probably better than Jefferson himself. Bradbury went on to report that he had identified two new types of orchids and a, quote, beautiful rock plant and many others of which I am doubtful. Some of these are removed into Mr. Jefferson's garden and others are marked in the woods and known to Colonel R., who has this morning promised to take care of them for me. It was his intention to take a lot of these specimens back to England. Bradbury wrote that Thomas Mann Randolph was cultivating sesamum indicum, which you see here, or sesame for the oil, something that Jefferson tried des desperately hard to grow but didn't grow very well in order to process it for oil, which, of course, Jefferson thought would be highly beneficial. And Bradbury also wrote at the same time to another friend back in England that Mr. Jefferson had a, quote, very good botanic library at Monticello, 
and remarked that Mr. Jefferson's house stands on a hill, and on that hill he found never-before-described plants. So it's kind of interesting to see how important this man felt it was to convey information about Jefferson and his world back to England. Um, and I think I also want to make the point here that this is not a letter to or from Jefferson, but these kinds of third-party correspondence, what we would call third-party correspondence, sheds a great deal of light on what Jefferson is doing, um, sometimes even in a more direct or kind of untarnished way because they're not writing to Jefferson, and it's not Jefferson himself who sometimes wouldn't give you the full unvarnished truth. People talking about him give us great insights. Um, also in that time period, I'm not sure exactly when, but in the month of August, they had a visit from Dolly and James Madison, and of course there's the Madison bedroom that they uh, apparently routinely uh, stayed in, and um, Albert and Hannah Gallatin. So they had four more visitors, probably overlapping a bit with the visit of John Bradbury. Another interesting visit, a very short one, but I think uh, this is a kind of falls in the category of you know, kind of acquaintances, not good friends, uh, is the visit from William Fontaine, who was a farmer in Hanover County, who was a real big um, collector of merino sheep. There was this merino sheep craze going on in 1810 and 11, during which time all the landholders, including Jefferson and John Hartwell Cock, were trying to buy up merino sheep and breed them because this was going to be their, quote, cash cow. No pun intended. Um, <laughs> They didn't ever really succeed, but for a time in 1810, they had what we really would call, in fact, they themselves called merino mania, merino fever, you name it. They had a name for it, something like that. But Fontaine uh, is an elderly gentleman. He would, be die, he would die in 1811, um, but he visited for a night, and he writes Jefferson after he gets home because he's a little concerned about this visit. He writes... I fear it is to be numbered among the unfortunate incidents of my life that I accepted the invitation of Mr. Randolph to call at Monticello. My mind is tortured with the apprehension that there was something in my demeanor, something in the heedless freedom of my conversation that was calculated to give offense. It is a general impression only which I have from my own reflection upon an imperfect recollection of particulars, for it is like a dream. Not a whisper has reached me, nor do I suppose it possible that such characters will ever condescend to speak of my weakness, so far as I may have trespassed upon the rules of decorum, decorum and have forgotten distinctions of character. I must be viewed as a rude and insensible clown by those who have had no previous knowledge of me. I'm kind of wondering, what the heck is he talking about? I think the truth comes out in the next paragraph. My family have gone off with apoplexies. I am the solitary member of a house of 13, my father's, that lives. Slight excitement under particular circumstances brings me to that rapid flow of the blood and spirits which destroys the guard of discretion, levels distinctions, and hurries me into blunders. And this predisposition has exposed me to a thousand scrapes, some ridiculous, some most serious. The extreme heat of the sun beating upon my feeble body was a good preparation for the powerful operation of a glass or two of wine. <laughs> That's why I'm showing you. You're wondering, what in the heck is that illustration there for? I couldn't find any wine glasses, but I wanted to you know, kind of conjure up the image of wine and spirits. 
The excessive heat and fatigue of the evening's duration were quite sufficient for an equal effect from a single glass of spirit and water. "'Tis not likely that I shall ever have the pleasure to see you again, and most improbable that I shall fall in the way of those other eminent personages before whom I may have exposed myself in my old servant." Uh, that doesn't quite make sense. I think I lost that quote a bit. TJ responded shortly thereafter and said he hadn't noticed a thing and that the family was very sorry that Fontaine hadn't stayed for breakfast because apparently he dashed out the next morning with not even saying goodbye. Uh, so there was no embarrassment there. He was uh, absolved of any kind of wrongdoing, and it, it appears he was worried he might have said something politically incorrect while under the influence. But TJ Ever, the gentleman, assures him this is not the case. One last visitor to look at, and this is a total stranger, and one who um, we might say is not necessarily a friend, more a foe, but Elijah Fletcher was a young man from Vermont who was on his way to teach school in North Carolina, but kind of got waylaid in Virginia. He ends up actually teaching, going down to um, Amherst County, and his family found Sweetbriar College. On his way, he stopped at Monticello. And he managed to get an invite to Monticello only through his acquaintance with John Kelly, who was a Charlottesville merchant. And I should also note that this is actually not 1809, but 1811. So I'm jumping ahead a little here because I think this is such an interesting visit. Fletcher's account of this visit is known because he writes a letter to his brother back in Vermont. We don't know anything, whether Jefferson himself said anything about him. There's no indication that he did. This is just somebody writing of their impression. So he wrote back to uh, Jesse Fletcher, when we arrived at the foot of the hill, we wound a sideways, sideway, circuitous course to avoid the steepness in getting the house, which was immediately upon the top of the mountain. We rode up to the front gate of the dooryard. A servant took our horses. Mr. Jefferson appeared at the door. I was introduced to him and shook hands with him very cordially. We went into the drawing room. Wines and liqueurs were soon handed us by the servant. He conversed with me very familiarly. He gratified my curiosity in showing me his library. The Museum of Curiosities. He kind of conflates these all together. So I'm assuming he saw both the drawing room, he saw the hallway, and then he also got into the library itself, which is sort of surprising. Uh, but what he calls the Museum of Curiosities, which could be any of those three rooms as far as I'm concerned. Although then he talks about the philosophical apparatus, which may have been the polygraph machine, some of the inventions that he had in the bedroom. And Mr. Jefferson is tall, spare, straight in body, his face not handsome, but savage. I learned he was but little esteemed by his neighbors. Republicans as well as Federalists in his own county dislike him and tell many anecdotes much to his disgrace. I confess I never had a very exalted opinion of his moral conduct, but from the information I gained of his neighbors, who, who must best know him, I have a much poorer one. The story of Black Sal is no farce. That he cohabits with her and has a number of children by her is a sacred truth, and the worst of it is he keeps the same children slaves, an unnatural crime which is very common in these parts so common that they cease here to be disgraceful. So it's a, I think it's a fascinating account, a very cultural clash in some ways, and also the fact that he assumes his brother back in Vermont, and those folks in Vermont are interested in even knowing all this, um, but also kind of confirms what we sometimes see, that locally in the county, Jefferson did have a mixed reputation. 
which is a little hard to, to verify. I just wanted to show you briefly, and I'm talking about Elijah Fletcher, and we must uh, call attention to the gravestone rubbing that's sitting on the table in the middle. This is uh, from his stone, which is down in Sweetbriar College. Uh, and it's just an example of the doggedness of our research people. Uh, we have history detectives in our midst. <laughs> and Deb Beckel is the one who, with her husband, climbed the fence, took the paper, and uh, did this stone rubbing. And thereby we were able to confirm his death date because we try to, in each case, when we have a person writing to or from, confirm their life dates. And what better source than a gravestone? So we do cite a lot of gravestones when we can get them. Uh, and just to show you briefly kind of how we work, that account that I just read from Elijah Fletcher's diary, you see a, just a kind of a section of the original document on the top left which is tough to read. Uh, this is a kind of a bad, an example of some pretty cramped uh, handwriting. It goes through several phases of proofreading and verification. You see a marked up copy on the lower left and then a cleaner copy on the right. That's a really quick uh, kind of compressed chain of events, but it's basically what happens. And everybody in the office at some point or other has their way with this document uh, all the editors verified at least once, or at least two editors verify it. Jeff would verify it. Our research person will fact check it. Um, our digital people might format it in various ways. So we, we all have our hands on these documents. Uh, just to conclude, um, as I've said, the project collects and prints some accounts of visits to Monticello, like the letter I mentioned from Elijah Fletcher, because we consider them fascinating documents. Although we are limited to the number of those kinds of documents that we can print, we do include those that describe Jefferson or sometimes include conversations with him, as was the case with, was, uh, with, the case with Margaret Baird Smith. And there's also another document in this first volume of an insurance agent talking about having talked to Jefferson about his insurance policy for Monticello. These documents give us rich insights, some positive, some not, but all important, I think, into understanding his life and times. Thanks. Thank you.